Hello from First Principles, your fortnightly leadership podcast from the Ken. If you're a new listener, it's great to have you here. And if you've subscribed to us already, welcome back. I am Rohan Dharma Kumar, your host, and in my free time, also the Ken's co-founder and CEO. This is the eighth episode of our show, and we're thrilled to have brought together a fantastic set of founders so far. each of them bringing so many new experiences and insights being the subscriber driven organization that we are we just love hearing from you tell us what can we do to make first principles even better or you could rate us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you're tuning in from it would mean the world to us this week you'll be listening to my conversation with amrish rao the ceo of pine labs one of india's most ubiquitous point of purchase payment providers last valued at over 5 billion dollars like most of my previous guests amrish is both a founder and a ceo but with a key difference he is the ceo of pine labs even though he isn't its founder the company he founded was citrus pay another payments company it no longer exists because in 2016 it got bought for 130 million dollars by payu another payments company incidentally rao was ceo of payu too with a career spanning 25 years across india and southeast asia established corporates and startups professional and founder roles amrish has a unique perspective on entrepreneurship risk taking and organization building i really enjoyed my conversation with amrish and i think so will you If Elon Musk offered you a job, would you take it? Amrish, do you recognize this question? Yeah, I do. I do. And uh, to be honest, uh, where's it from? <laughs> to be honest, this is uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about, right? Which is, I still haven't answered the question. Where's it from? Where is it from? Uh, no, you th- asked it on your Twitter. I know. I asked it on the Twitter. So uh, I asked it on the Twitter. I really wanted to understand the psyche of the new employee. I, I think what's really happened is. employees have been changing and their requirements have been changing so for example something which i think about quite a bit is you want your corporate to be caring and nice with you but at the same time you don't want a mushy over the top you know almost an uncomfortably loving you know company to be around you you also want the company to be a little bit result oriented trying to find the right outcome them becoming successful and you as an employee becoming successful where is that balance is what i have been searching for as a person but also as a leader i need to understand that and that was a very spontaneous question i threw out there i don't know if you saw the results it actually was a 55 45 so i i do believe that everybody is stuck in that corner which says what is really being nice and then what is being too tough and where's the fine balance between all of that i'm going to force you to answer that question would you work for elon musk you know i 
very interesting, right? As this has unfolded, right now where I stand, the answer would be a no. Where it started off with, I think the answer would have been yes. If you look at the purpose with which that individual uh, exists and, you know, wanting to send humanity to Mars, uh, wanting to come up with programs wherein you can move from fossil-based fuel to electric, I think those are causes that one wants to be associated with. The second part, what he really, initial days, what it felt was, you know, let's get the business in order. Let's get the organization in order. Let's move it in a right direction. But then when you start sounding like being too firm and over the top and say, I own your soul and you need to work only for me, that's when you start to lose people, right? So I have to say that emotions changed almost like literally over a 14-day period wherein you felt, yeah, you'd want to work for Musk to saying, no, I'm not going yeah. to work for a tyrant. We're, we're recording this on 18th November. Yeah. And as of 18th November, yeah. what's happened is Twitter has closed down its offices for all its employees and shut off badge access. That's so bad, right? Over the entire weekend because they don't know who they can trust, exactly. who's on board, who's not on board. So, how do you get there? How do you get there? It's like unbelievable how you can get there over a two-week period. And, and the goalposts have moved from when... Must join to Twitter is going to become the next big thing to look, he fired so many employees yeah. and yet Twitter is running. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the new goalpost. Yeah. But anyway, uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Amrish. Thanks so much uh, for being on it. Thank you very much. Look, uh, really appreciate all that you guys do, you know, who really try and cover for what's happening in the startup world, what the startup world is building. Some things great, some things a uh, little bit controversial, but hey, Life as uh, everybody. Before we move on from the topic of Musk, I want to reference an earlier conversation we were having in the studio, which is also in some ways connected to Musk, who said, if you work for Twitter, you gotta come into office and put in at least 40 hours or else you can consider yourself fired. Yeah. And we were talking about the challenge of convincing employees to come back to office. Yeah. And it's something that I also agreed. Usually what ends up is that founders or CEOs become the bad cops because ultimately someone needs to take a call and it ends up being them. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the importance of working from office? See, I think, you know, um, there is this whole concept around uh, war times and peace times. And the way I say this is that in India, everything is war time every day. Markets are changing, opportunities are getting bigger. Uh, you know, you could find pots of gold lying anywhere and everywhere. What that means is you actually need to do a lot of debate and conversation within your team. Now, if you're in an environment, if you're in the business line, which is forever at war time, you want to meet people regularly, you want to have conversations with them. I think there is a need for everybody to be in office. Interestingly, there are different parts within your own organization who really don't need to be in that war room every day. For example, it just doesn't make sense to ask an engineer to, you know, come from two hours away and come into office and code for six hours and then go back. I, ha You know, they have my empathy, sympathy, which says that, look, why should you really come into office every day? But there are going to be product roles, sales roles, finance roles, which you want them to be in that war room. You want them to be close to each other, build the bond. And those sets of people should be coming into office a lot more. Incidentally, what we are trying to drive out here is the top 100 within the organization should be meeting on a regular basis. 
beyond the top 100, if they can be a little bit flexible in terms of being in office for, let's say, two days of the week, I think I'm personally fine with it. But just in my style of how I operate, I don't really try and do somebody else's job. And I really let the leadership in my organization decide how they want to run their organization. And they have the flexibility to do it. How many years as an entrepreneur did you take to reach the point where you said you're not going to do somebody else's job for them? You know, that's a brilliant question, right? So I actually think that this is all about age. Uh, I'm sure you'll get to that point at some in your uh, discussion. I'm 49 years. When I was, let's say, 35, 36, I was all about, you know, you know, there is one way of doing it. This is how we do it. Let's all march in the same direction. As you age, you start to realize that people are different. People's circumstances are different. Your thinking process is different. And hence, there's an importance to letting them find their own style, evolve and run organizations on their own. At the same time, you should not leave it to a such a level where you start to feel that you're hands off when it comes to business. So generally, my mantra has been that when things are going good, do it your own way, do it your own style. Actually, you can actually ask me to buzz off if I come and ask you a question. But when things starts to tighten up, let's all get together and find a way to get out of that situation that we have ended up in. Interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll go in a slightly deeper direction in this, which is really also about coaching versus fixing. Right. Uh, a friend sent me an interesting article today and which brought, brought out this difference, which a lot of founders uh, face, right? Because founders start companies by essentially doing a lot of the things themselves. Yeah. Right? They're very hands-on. Yeah. And then as their organizations grow, they need to let go of, but they still end up fixing things. Right. And at some point, they have to switch over to the coaching mentality, yeah. which is you don't really do it for your colleagues or employees, but you help them figure out how to do it. How has your transition been on this path of rolling your sleeves up yourself versus getting your colleagues or teammates to do it by coaching them? So, you know, you go to, so there is not one single path. Your path is always sometimes going up, sometimes going down. Let me give you one example, right? So in my in my career, I've had two phases. One phase when I worked as a corporate leader. And in that corporate setup, I had reached a position where I used to run Asia for an American company. Now, from then, when I went to do my own startup, I initially started off by, oh, you know, we need to build this product. Somebody go and build it and let me know when it's ready. We can take it out in the market. As a founder, you start to realize saying, if you don't die yourself every day, you will not create anything. So suddenly you had to move from being this order giving leader to really roll up your sleeves, get into the everyday activity and start building products on your own. But the way I look at it is I learn a new trick. The new trick is I know how a product can come together, how a product can be built and something fresh can get created. Larger in the larger scheme of thing is as you go, as you evolve, you need to learn a new trick. What that new trick is, it could it, it doesn't have to be that you have to become a better leader or a better uh, you know manager. It could be like you are actually understanding how a call center runs. It could be all about how a product can get created. But you've got to learn a new trick 
every few years. And if you learn a new trick, what happens is you can then work with your existing organization, allow them to do things which you were good at at some point of time. And all which you're doing is you're coaching in that area. But then this new area you are learning. Um, so you've got to evolve. See, one of the things what people make a mistake is that everybody else has to evolve. You don't have to evolve. If you don't evolve, I think, you know, the company is not going to go in the right direction. Hmm, interesting. So you're saying organizations are observing and modeling themselves on founder behavior. Are they rolling up their sleeves? Are they picking up new skills? Are they upskilling themselves? And therefore it flows down the organization. And even, yeah, exactly. The founder has to constantly evolve, maybe almost half a step ahead of everybody if the organization has to get better. If the founder continues to do what she or he is doing at the same level of where they were about five or seven years back, I don't think so the company evolves. You have to learn something new and you have to create something new and you've got to contribute to the direction that you're going in. May I ask you, what's the new thing, significant new thing that you've learned over the last, let's say, one or two years? So, you know, I, I would say over the last two, three or four years, one of the things I've learned is, uh, for example, how do you consolidate cultures? Uh, I'll give you an example. In Pine Labs today, we have... Pine Labs, we have Quicksilver, we have now acquisitions like Setu and Mosambi and a few others. Interestingly, all the cultures are completely different. And I'll I'll tell you by geography, right? So there is a Pine Labs, which is a Noida-based organization. You have a Quicksilver and Setu, which is a Bangalore-based organization. And you have a Mosambi, which is a Bombay-based organization. And their ethos, their cultures, their behaviors are completely different. For example... At the risk of uh, engaging in some amount of stereotyping, help us understand how are Mumbai cultures different from Bangalore cultures, different from Delhi NCR cultures. I, I, you know, again, so that I don't stereotype it, I'll talk about my organization. So, sure. for example, we have an organization, uh, Quicksilver, one of the largest prepaid businesses in the world. That organization, if you meet anybody from that company, you will say such a nice, humble, sweet set of people. But what people don't realize is they are also one of the most aggressive set of, you know, operators in that organization. So there's this unbelievable mix in the Bangalore organization that we have is very soft-spoken, very, very humble, but aspirations and dreams are unlimited and very aggressive. And, you know, if you're not listening to the conversation carefully, you might almost feel saying, oh, down to earth might be low Chill. on ambitions, but they are super aggressive as a team out there. On the other hand, you have a Noida-based team from Pine Labs. There was a point in time where they used to only hire for mathematicians in Pine Labs there. And there, for example, hardcore Hindi speaking, you know, generally a loud organization. And you would sometimes believe that, hey, this is like a over-the-top aggressive, you know, institution which we have there. On the other hand, not at all aggressive. That organization was built on the fact that if you give me a nice code to build, if you give me a nice math problem to solve, I'll go into the deep of it and I'll solve the math problem. Again, if you're just sitting and listening to that, you'll feel, oh, it's such an aggressive behavior which is coming through. I've learned that 
people are completely different you should not start with a position which says that oh understand you know which geography who comes in and where it is everybody has their own strength and how do you bring all of that together into a single jar is something which i have learned over the last 3 years incidentally when citrus was acquired by payu payu was a gurgaon based company uh, all of citrus was based out of bombay two completely different cultures there again and then how do you pull that together is something which i have learned over these last 5 years 3 years equivalent of a new york company acquiring a silicon valley absolutely. Com- based company absolutely right we haven't got into an introduction of pine labs your ceo of pine labs could you tell us in a line or two i know it's a complex ask what pine labs is Pine Labs is a company which is building to be at the point of purchase. We want to be there where every transaction is being done. And if you look at what happens when a transaction is being done, there is a merchant, there is a product, there is a consumer. Consumer has a payment type, merchant has something where the payment transaction gets completed, and there's a whole range of emotion which runs between the merchant and the consumer and they individually we want to be in the middle of all of that and if you actually see all our payment products they all fall exactly in that same ethos which is we are at the point of purchase may that be as the prepaid issuing business that we have may that be the setu business the setu business is all about api so that commerce can happen faster pine labs is about the terminal and the device and the transaction and plural is this whole online business which is again online purchase we also don't want to go far away from where we are so invariably what you will hear about a fintech is saying i want to go into credit i want to become a bank we don't have any of those aspirations as of now our aspiration is if we can be at the point of purchase money is being traded we have a chance to make a few cents out of it that should be enough for us the most common touch point most listeners uh would have with pine labs is those transaction machines the point right. of sale machines right. when you especially if you're in bangalore and yeah. we see those really right. nifty looking like look like smartphones stuck on a terminal kind of yeah. thing right that's and 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 i must say one of the most irritating i understand it's being done for security reasons is every time you have to enter your uh code into the machine yeah the the orientation of the keys change i'm assume because sometimes it's it's not like 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 those keys yeah. the layout changes yeah. i'm assuming it's some kind of a security it trick so that you can't read the exact location on the screen where you're but it is but you know just on that one we actually got it changed out after we have done with this you got to let me know which is the merchant that we missed i'll go and fix that one oh is it or maybe maybe it's muscle memory or maybe, maybe i've done memory. it so long yes, that i've not correct. recognize that you stopped doing yeah, it yeah we fixed right? it now yeah okay that that's great to hear how does pine labs make money again i think in a in a nutshell we I'm want i'm going to, to ask you to explain it in a way that my mom could understand yeah yeah so first of all as i told you we want to make money around every transaction we want to make money from the merchant we want to make money from the product owner which is trying to sell a product at that point of purchase today what we don't do is make money from the consumer hopefully you would want to make a few tiny pieces from the uh, from the consumer too and then there is a bank somewhere there 
so you want to make some money from the bank also so when you go to a store use your prepaid card or your qr code or uh, let's say a credit card to do a transaction we expect to make a tiny paisa from maybe one of these four sets of people or in some cases two of these four people that is consumers merchants brand and then bank if we make a few cents from any one of them we are happy right um i have a, a point that you know while you were speaking just came to my mind and which is really going back and looking at the point of sale machines they used to be these calculator like machines with keypads on them and like you know with a small single line display and you would see people entering numbers and, and those machines still exist and if i'm not mistaken i think you folks were at least either the first or one yeah. of the pioneers to replace that yeah. with essentially just a giant slab of glass yeah. which was a screen right which is completely configurable and it could display whatever and i'm trying to connect this back to the way pos terminals evolved for instance in the us where you look at um or or if you look at let's say apple pay which right. is at the end of the day uh, a a pos terminal today the one one of your modern types looks like it's a smartphone yeah. stuck onto a battery and a yeah. um, sim card yeah most consumers already have that in their pocket why isn't it that we are able to just yeah. use our phones to make them why is still a pos so central to commerce in india you know uh, rohan that's a interesting question i've got to tell you a interesting story so over the last uh, 18 months we raised some phenomenal amount of money and i met investor after investor and every single one of those investors asked me a question which says do you think this pos machine is going to last uh, we think pos is going to go out of fashion and you will be surprised the number of devices or number of screens at the checkout counter according to me in india has doubled in the last 3 years and i'll tell you how it has doubled right everybody has a zomato screen there everybody has a swiggy screen there you have a sound box from paytm you have a pos machine out there you have an invoicing led screen where somebody is creating a bill out there So in the last three years, the number of screens have increased. Now, what we as Pine Labs are saying is, we are not a POS company. We are a software company which integrates for everything which happens at the point of purchase. So, for example, in Malaysia, the food delivery companies in Malaysia run their food delivery app on our device. The same screen that you are talking about. On that, we can run the food delivery services there. For example, Sodexo. Sodexo transaction runs today on our same Android device where somebody can come in and say I'm a Sodexo customer I want to do a Sodexo transaction sure you can do it so one of the one of the things to clarify is we don't really see ourselves as a payments only company we are saying anything which happens at the point of purchase we want to try and consolidate this into our device again just as an information is today you have this device which is a 7 inch screen but the way i see this is pine labs does its job very well that screen should become a 11 inch screen over a period of time and i don't care how it looks beyond a certain point i also don't care what is the hardware device because our magic is being able to pull various services into one screen again the reason why pine labs is omnipresent 
is because we are not turning around and telling the merchant we do only payments. We tell the merchant saying, aapko jo karna hai, aap aajo hamare screen pe, we'll get it done. And that's why we have survived for such a long period of time. Which brings me to this next section where we are going to try to understand this giant animal which is Pine Labs. Right. How old is the company? You know, the company is somewhere about 20 years plus. In that 20 years, the company has gone to gone through two or three phases, right? One phase was, it used to be part of a larger company. I actually don't even know that company it was called Indus Logic or Global Logic or whatever it was. Got spun out into a separate entity. Uh, a manager took it over, ran this as his own company, which was Lokveer Kapoor. He ran that till about 2016, 2017. But I think the most operative part of this company was when Sequoia came in and invested into that company. Sequoia invested in a company somewhere around 2008-2009. Sequoia still continues to own almost 25% of Pine Labs as of date. And that's the time when the company moved into payments, first starting with fuel-based payments, then to retail payments. Then we went on the issuing side, on the card side. And then we have all of these newer services that we have consolidated into the organization. So it's gone through many different phases over a period of time. All right. How many employees do you have today? It's about 4,200. What's your revenue? You know, uh, like for example, in FY23, I would want to be almost in the region of about $250 million of revenues in our company. And since you're a payments company, could you give us a sense of what's the transaction volume that passes through you folks. Again, because 250 million I'm assuming is what you want to make as, as revenue. We will make as revenue in this way, which you think of it as what we will take as our take rate on all of that. But um, we actually don't look at our business in terms of volumes of transactions that we run because what we don't do is we don't charge by the transaction value. So what we really try and do is how many merchants do we have? How many checkout points do we own? What are the various softwares which run on those checkout points? And then we charge in a SaaS-like model. Again, as we were discussing, people have various interpretations of what Pine Labs does, but less than 1% of my revenue comes out of this whole MDR thing. So which I, might, I might complain with what the government of India does on MDR. Doesn't affect my PNL at all. Because at the end of the day, our Revenue model is completely different. Could you explain what the MDR is? M MDR is basically the fee that a payments company charges for processing a payment transaction. And that MDR today for a debit card transaction is in the region of about 40 to 60 basis points. For a, a credit card is about 1.8%. And UPI, it's actually zero. And... Uh, there is a general feeling that because of that, some of the payment companies are struggling. Uh, we think of ourselves much more as a SaaS company and we've always been as a SaaS company. Uh, and hence, we've been continuing to grow very well. Right. How fast are you growing? Uh, about 60% year on year. Uh, you said you've raised money from venture capitalists. Could you disclose to us what's your most recent valuation? Yeah, so we last raised at about $5 billion. Um, and that's when we had two investors joining us uh, in this year. And what's the total quant, approximately the total quantum of uh, funding that you've raised? You know, I actually don't know that answer. <laughs> I don't know how much is it. What I do know is uh, in the last, 
I would say two years we raised about a billion or so. That's a lot. Where is all of that going into? So, uh, like, if you were to kind of help us draw a pie chart of sorts, what yeah. would be the top three or four categories into which you intend to invest that billion dollars that you raised? You know, so this is an interesting one, right? So, as far as we are concerned, the way we look at it is, we think that payments hasn't started in India. Uh, I mean. Uh, you know i would love to take uh, jeff bezos's uh, analogy but i have my own story right we are in the cricket ground the first ball is yet to get bowled the crowd is just clapping that's where we are when it comes to payments so i think what our, makes you say that uh, you know i'm i'm a complete uh, sports uh, fanatic no uh, not the sports analogy but what makes you say that given all of the competition fundraising that exists in the indian payments and fintech space why do you say we're still at day zero or we're still waiting for the match to start if you look at the number of consumers who have today come under the banking umbrella within that a subset of those who have actually adopted to digital payment transactions within that what is the frequency of their transaction we are at an abysmally low number right now from a consumer adoption standpoint similarly from a merchant adoption standpoint in terms of how many merchants are today ready to take electronic payment transactions it is extremely low now obviously what has happened between uh, the demonetization days to today with upi and with the whole qr code acceptance still digital payments has gone to many many areas but we still believe that this still covered only 10% of the opportunity where digital payments can go to there is 90% market left where digital payments can yet go to so as far as i am concerned all the fundraise that we have made in the last 2 years time it's really to go ahead and expand places or touch points where digital payments can go to and then start influencing the consumer with right products so that they can make digital payments as a part of their life and that's really where we have been going to now there's another larger piece to ask is where do we go next right do we go global do we Uh, go into more areas just in india i think those are the things that is still evolving in our thinking process all right you have a very interesting background you're the first founder on this show who's a founder but not the ceo of a company that he or she founded you did not um uh, found pine labs but instead uh, do you want to tell us your background because you started citrus pay Yeah. uh which got acquired by payu where you were head of payu then subsequently then you came to pine labs tell us your background where do you want me to start so there are two parts i could start with i could start at citrus or i could start at pay pine labs so where do you want to start uh, depending on it's completely up to you okay so um look first of all let me go right behind right so uh, i actually looked up who all you have invited uh, on your show and i looked at everybody's pedigree out there and one thing which i realized that i'm maybe one of the two uh, nitin being the other one uh, who actually didn't go to an iit or didn't go to an iim so i went to an engineering uh, college in uh, in bombay incidentally it was called shyan anchor kachi engineering college where i went to <laughs> uh, so i came from a mindset where you know get into engineering get into a good job and just be happy with what you're trying to achieve and that's when i went into the corporate world i started to do well on the sales side uh, you know grew my profile went to a certain position in the corporate world 
And uh, I reached a certain point where I started to realize saying, uh, this is not something which I enjoy. And by the way, this was out of the blow which hit me. Like, I just don't enjoy what I'm doing. And again, top of my success, uh, I just realized I'm not enjoying it. Roughly about 11 years ago or so. That's correct. 11, 12 years. So So you're about to turn 40. You're about 39. Exactly, right? And and I talk about this quite a bit, right? So when everybody talks about this whole midlife crisis and all of that, I used to always believe this midlife crisis is the rich man's disease. Suddenly I felt that, hang on, this is my midlife crisis. I want to do something different. I had a chat with my wife and, you know, my wife is actually a college sweetheart. I actually had a chat with her and told her, I said, look, I'm not enjoying this. Uh, I want to do something different. Uh, Took some time from her saying that, okay, I want to try and explore this area which uh, I want to go in. And that's when we built Citrus. But that background was also one of the follies of that whole Citrus journey. Because what happens is, in that journey, we were only thinking about when is the exit? What is going to be the outcome? And when we had... Citrus Pay, for listeners' context, was also a payments, online payments. You did largely online payments. Online payments growing extremely well. Uh, we were continuing to win every day. Our greatest competition used to be Naspers Pay You. And one fine day, they came back and said, hey, you know what? All cash deal. Stay with us for three years. We're ready to give you an exit. I have to tell you, like, in my head, there was no no thought. It was so clear. I had to do this deal because the background with which you come starts to influence your behavior. Building to exit. You're building to exit, right? And just before the completion of the deal was happening, I started to get cold feet. And I said, hang on. What am I going to do the next day after this exit? And what is my sense of purpose after that? I'll come to that bit because it's a very important piece, right? Then I did my three years with Naspers, um, you know, delivered to that integration. PayU, as you know, has continued to grow on and become bigger. And then the day it's my... today the second largest online payments provider in India? No, no, it's a big problem. Hai. And right. the company which I've been, I love it the most. PayU is number one. <laughs> All right, it's the largest. PayU is the largest, right? All right. Uh, but the day I finished my three years, I was ready to run to do something different. Sequoia had funded us on the first round. I went to Sequoia to raise money. This was the day when days when Kunal had raised his round, Jiten has raised his round. Uh, I was ready to raise a decent round in those time and get going. And Shailendra, who's on the board of Sequoia, calls me up and says, Hey, Amrish, there's another way to do it. And we spent hours together to understand what is the another way. But I think the simple thing what he told me is, he's saying you're the dog who's chasing for something important. I'm going to give you the keys of the car. You drive that car. Um, To be fair with him, he's lived up to his side of the deal till date. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm never going to call myself the founder of Pine Labs, but I'll always say that this is a company which I completely own and run. Tell us what's been the difference because this is a very important transition. You've Start. You worked for uh, international multinationals as senior executive heading countries. You've run your own startup. You've sold it, and then you 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 were heading PayU, and now so you you've made this transition between founder to professional CEO more than a couple of times, right? So what's what's the difference 
each time when you made that so so one thing to clarify out here is while i am the ceo and while i am not the founder doesn't mean i'm not the owner there's a difference between all of these three i see this as something which i own and i see this as my personal reputation is attached to the reputation of pine labs and vice versa and if you run with that mindset then you don't see yourself as an corporate ceo and then if you have a tag called founder or if you have a tag called owner it doesn't really matter anymore right so one thing which i did clarify very very early with the board and with the you know large shareholders is i'm going to run this as my own company and because of that i'm going to expect you to treat me in that same way and i was very very lucky by the way i have many many friends from different walks of life who say oh i've been called in to run so and so company and they think i'm going to give them an advice and i'm saying guys no wait please understand you should know what you're getting into and where you're getting into let me give you an example of for example of lokveer kapoor lokveer kapoor had a uh, you know had a requirement of his own where he said i wanted to step out in 3 years he hasn't called me up once the only time when i have called him up is like hey lokveer i need to know this one can you help me absolutely i would be able to get some papers signed or yeah like <laughs> yeah you know uh, yeah sure absolutely happy so i think that has given me a complete sense of ownership and comfort now by the way that is what i am trying to do with the organization also which is how can you have a larger set of people who treat this as an ownership so you know just recently i had the sales head come back to me and he told me saying aapko daatna hai to aap daat lo lekin main aapko ek bata raha hu ki boss you don't really need to do it kyunki ye to meri company hai to main ko jo chahiye main karte rehne wala hu so aap daato ya nahi daato i'm going to get this done so you then start to feel that he's got the owner's mindset where is that coming from the owner's mindset is it esops is it something else i mean esops is obviously the base esops has to be there right but then the second piece to it is also the freedom of making decisions and be aware that you're not going to get judged now this goes back to my corporate world and what i do in the startup world right one of the things that i learned in the corporate world which just completely killed me if you ask me was the whole corporate world is structured to be judged every action and to be risk averse and and because you're going to get judged you also end up becoming risk averse right so one of the things that i have done in each one of my startups is you should not have an environment where somebody is going to judge you hr is not allowed to judge you the legal folks are not allowed to judge what you what does this mean because i'm very intrigued and this is very important what does it i know at a simple level what you're saying makes sense you should not be judged but at an organizational level what are either the cultural values or the processes that you put into place to make sure that that's reflects that you are not judged yeah. like let's say someone decides to do something take a bet and it tanks what does it mean at pine labs to say that person will not be judged you know that's a great example and that's one of the things which i'm actually trying to say right that you make a decision and your decision tanks you're not going to be under the pump for that piece however in a large organization of 4200 people the problem is somewhere else people come in with that mindset which says i don't want to make a decision if you don't make a decision 
I have to tell you, I'm going to go after you. You have to make a decision in your position and you might be successful or you might be unsuccessful. That doesn't matter. But if you don't make a decision, that is unacceptable. Doing nothing is not an option. Is not an option, right? And that, for example, is where we've drawn a very clear hard line which says, you cannot come into a situation and says, oh, the HR didn't give me the right answer. Or, you know, the HR is going to ask the legal how that is going to all transpire. I wasn't sure how the CFO is going to handle it. These are not areas that you can get away with. You as a leader or you as a person have to make a decision and it's something which I'm trying to push in a big way. That's important. The second thing which, again, coming from the corporate world is what you don't want is you're not allowed to talk about a third person and the person is not in the room. Now, Respect I'm, I'm, for the absent. Absolutely. I'm just saying this figuratively, right? We have that as well. Because Do not say to anyone behind their backs if you can't say it to their face. Absolutely. So that leads to this whole concept of politics which starts off, right? So some of those things, if you start to implement it, people then make fearless decisions knowing that they are not going to get judged. Of course, the outcomes, everybody is going to look at what the outcome is, but that's not judging, right? It's like, you know, in the corporate world, you have this scenario, you know, where, you know, you might be three drinks down, you make a comment and somebody comes next day to you and says, what you said wasn't completely sensitive. No, hang on. Were you actually at the drink table with me and judging what I was saying? No, you got to stop doing that. Uh, I think that's some of the things that we are trying to inculcate in the play, in the types of companies that we are building. I noticed on the Pine Labs website, three of the countries listed you know, at the bottom of the foot are India, Malaysia and UAE. Yeah. It's a very interesting combination. I don't think I've seen this specific combination on any company's footer. Why this? You know, that makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, look, this is the baggage of legacy, right? See, sometimes you don't only get the good things. You also get the tough things to come your way. So, for example, when I took over... Malaysia business was doing 10 crores and Malaysia business was losing 12 crores in a month. And I say, guys, what's wrong? This is not the way we are going to run our business. Uh, just now, Malaysia business is now doing almost 35 crores of revenues. This year is going to do 35 crores. Next year, we think it will go to about 70 crores. But why Malaysia? is just a legacy that came our way. Similarly, in the case of Dubai, Dubai is a high margin business for payments side. Uh, we went into Dubai and then we froze and we stood there in the Dubai market. In my three years, I just haven't had time to go to Dubai to go and explore the market, understand the market, get it going. We just had a new country head for that business. Uh, but yeah, it's not design. It's just uh, the legacy which I'm running with. How do you evaluate some of these decisions when it comes to, all right, we went there because of legacy reasons. Should we continue to stay there? I'm assuming you're doing some kind of an analysis that says that this is where we are, this is how big the opportunity can get. Does it become meaningful for us to stay? But why are you... I, I'm, I don't want to kind of put you in a spot by asking you specifically about your Malaysia or Dubai operations, but I'm saying generally it could be a product which is doing middling revenues. Like it's something that you have to pull back on and that's always a hard thing for an organization. How do you take those calls? So, Rowan, the other thing which we have to remember is that world has changed literally in the last six months. And I would have given you a different answer six months back and I'll give you a different answer today. Six months back, I will almost condone myself for 
what decisions I make by being a little bit easy and so on and so forth. Where we are in the world today and where liquidity has reached, I think it's extremely important for us to become tight and ensure there is no leakage of easy money um, and, you know, easy money is not uh, being protected. For example, we had a business in Indonesia. We had about 70 people in Indonesia. Business was doing, doing almost like zero revenues or a little bit of a revenues. Indonesia is a massive market. It would have been ideal for Pine Labs to continue in that Indonesian market. Just about three months back, I made a decision saying nothing doing. We're getting out of uh, Indonesia. We had uh, we had some uh, fat which was got built into the Malaysia side of the business, uh, not in the terminal side of the business, but another acquisition which I had done. I had to start consolidating that. In today's time, not taking action on easy leakage is where founder is or the CEO is just giving herself or himself just an easy pass. It's not just leakage. It's also organizational bandwidth and Absolutely. resources. And as I said, when money was free, you're allowed to make some of those decisions. In the world where we are in today, there is no way that a CEO can convince and say that it's okay if, you know, a few million dollars are being leaked. I can tell you that there is a business which which we have within our organization or losing a million dollars in the first month of this year on a monthly basis. Uh, and the only thing which I'm working on personally is how does it get to a 200K burn only in March 23? So in 12 months time, from a negative of 1 million, I want to take it to a, a negative of 200K. 800K is the saving. Now you'll turn around and say, hang on, Amrish, you just told me you have a 200 plus million dollars of revenues. Why is this such a big thing? I think it's much more of setting the expectation within the organization saying that, guys, world has changed and we need to change in our behavior and be a little bit firm on some of these decisions. It's interesting that you should say the world has changed. Of course, the world has changed. But I'm going to ask you, how long do you expect? Like, what's the range that you have for how long things might be in this change state? So, I have no idea about how long this will be. What are you One, planning for internally? What's your best case, worst case scenario? Yeah, so, so, so let me complete this thought, right? What I do know is, we are not getting back to where we were nine months back. What we are not getting back to is 0% interest rates. And that is not going to happen at least for the next three to four years time. And that's written in stone. You have to understand that the only reason why these excesses came about, and like, for example, you know, I've been in this for last 25 years. It took me a while to start talking to investors. You've also been one of the beneficiaries of these excesses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that it took me a while to start talking in multiples of revenues. And I used to always scratch my head and saying, hang on, how can you talk in multiples of revenues? To make matters worse, in payments, people talk in multiples of gross revenue. I mean, in payments, you can never talk in terms of multiples of gross revenue, but that's where the world got to. We were not going to go back there for the next three or four years time. Will things settle down and will things get better? Let's say, for example, inflation in the US comes down from 7% to 4%. We still will see an heightened interest rate regime, which you can say as base case. And that could happen, let's say, in the next two years time. But going back to those days of 0% interest, no focus on EBITDA and EBIT, not happening for the next three or four years time. And investors are going to look for dividends. 
Investors are going to look for free cash flows. Investors are going to look for EBIT for sure. On the same topic, also related to your Indonesia, Malaysia, Dubai operations, there used to be this thinking not so long ago that digital payments is a global opportunity. Yeah. If you solved it in one country, you can take that playbook and go to another country and solve it as well. We now know that's not true. I mean, as in your own example, I mean, if you're in a commendable position in India, one would assume that Southeast Asian economies like Malaysia, Indonesia, you should be able to crack it. We've seen the example of Stripe in India, uh, which, you know, came in and everyone was like, oh my God, Stripe has come in. Now it's everyone else's toast. And we've seen how that hasn't happened. In fact, Stripe has struggled to execute in India. What's the reason why? Because to a lay user, it looks like you guys are doing online payments. All that requires some code and integration. Why is it so hard to scale the same model across neighboring countries? I'll explain it to you in layman's word, right? So I've built a technology and that technology in any of the jurisdictions or any of the countries work along with banks in those countries. So for example, in India, Pine Lives might have a great relationship with an Axis Bank, HDFC Bank, and ICICI Bank as an example. And hence, my technology works extremely well. We deliver solution to merchants. I take the technology and go into Singapore. I have to build a relationship with OCBC. I have to relationship with DBS and with UOB. I then have to also go and open up a relationship with various merchants in those markets. Now, let's say there's a Singapore country manager who calls me up and says, Hey, Amrish, I want to prioritize my integration into DBS Bank for Singapore. At the same time, the India leader comes back and says, By the way, SBI is about to sign up. I'm going to tell the DBS guy saying, Hey, wait, you come back to me three months later. I want to focus on this whole SBI opportunity. So in a nutshell, two things which affects. One, you still have to build local practices local integrations for payments to work. Hence, payments technology is not very transportable from one country to another. And then the second piece, what happens is this whole central organization and these distributed branches, the branches never get the attention. So I never fear about how PayPal is going to come and disrupt or Square is going to disrupt or Stripe is going to disrupt. No, they're not going to happen. This is never going to happen. I've worked with First Data for so many years. It's just too difficult for them to come and win in a market like ours. All right. I want to switch gears to the consumer side. We've been talking about your business for a while, how it operates. And I think one of the most fascinating things that's happened around payments over the last many years is how it's it started as a way to make it easier for people to do their transactions. So now it's changing the way people do transactions. By which I mean, people are willing to order a meal by using a paid later option. They are willing to purchase something which is not that expensive, but on EMIs. So the entire like, so what I mean, the point that I'm trying to make is that payments is influencing consumer behavior, which in turn influences payments. Right? So there is this feedback loop that's going. So what's your view on this changing? And, and by the way, I'll come later to some of the downsides of this, which is essentially the entire globally, the the fall of the paid later, you know, valuation bubble, etc. 
but if you look at in india people are paying rentals people are like i said ordering stuff from swiggy and dunzo by using a paid later option it's just it seems like you know there's a lot of consumer behavior change how do you see this evolving changing consumer behavior so con- again as i keep saying this that you know the, what fascinates me the most is what is the consumer emotion and the merchant emotion when a purchase is being made and one of the things that i have clearly learned is consumer is always looking for a frictionless experience which ensures that his money is not being taken away if the consumer can get convinced consumer will always adopt that i'll give you one example a few years back when rbi came up with this otp requirement on the end of every payment transaction every e-commerce company in india went shouting to rbi saying oh you're going to screw the experience up our transactions are going to fall i believe that this otp coming in has single handedly helped consumer adoption to digital payments because the consumer is saying my money is safe because of this otp my money is not going to go away at the same time when consumers used to just use a card transactions used to happen we know of instances where in punjab and other locations where the consumer used to keep their debit cards in their safe deposit vaults so no transactions were happening so one piece was security and that helped other is coming up with frictionless now the reason one of the reason why upi has worked very well is it's a very frictionless transaction at the same time because of this mpin the consumer feels very comfortable that my money is going to be safe so when you have that sort of an environment transactions will continue to increase on the other hand is when it comes to merchants merchants also realizing saying because of covid people don't want to touch cash because of this demonetization people want to do electronic payments and then this other piece which says that if there are e-commerce companies which are eating my lunch i need to sound digital and the first thing that they try and do in their stores to sound digital is to go ahead and buy that pos machine in their shop and that's the reason why digital payments have also come into the uh, uh, everyday life so i believe that wave will continue to rise now you got to remember that i am the tragic who has been at it for last 25 years you know 20 years back you used to sit there in frustration and say when is the whole digital payments wave going to come so when you see this now i might have all my frustrations about oh mdr should be better i hope we can make some more money but when you get above all these things the fact that india is building an infrastructure for payments is just an heartening heartening thing for me personally could i ask you to expand upon that i mean i when you said india is building an infrastructure for payments one key part of that is of course the upi infrastructure but what else do you consider as part of the payments infrastructure that india is building when you look at the flow of credit so today for example uh, you, you know you know it's 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 an easy thing for us to talk about saying everybody wants to talk about credit the reason why everybody ta- wants to talk about credit is because credit is highly underpenetrated in india businesses today are just not getting access to a line of credit so that they can actually you know work towards their dreams at the same time consumers are not able to buy new products because they don't like to have they don't have access to credit you know look i'm going to sound really bad but i'm going to tell you one truth right if you have aspirations and if you want to have a life which is always going up and always doing better 
credit is the way to go if the, if you know if i have a cousin who turns around and says hey amrish i earn 100 dollars i'm going to buy an apartment for 90 dollars i will have a tough talk with him and saying dude you earn 100 dollars go buy an apartment for 250 dollars and that's the only way in which you will be able to aspire that's the only way that you will also grow credit is extremely important for every individual to also lead a better life and i might say that for the person you know who is below the poverty line or the richest person same goes for a corporate somebody who is starting a business today or maybe the reliance group credit is required and the flow of credit in india is completely broken the cost of delivery of credit is just too high cost of collections of credit is too high and when you look at what we are trying to do in terms of this account aggregator framework identity framework um some of the other services that are being created i truly believe credit will start to flow uh, and that will help the economy in general that will help the common person uh, in general all right want to switch to the pay later bubble bursting globally at one point like you know i'm i'm not sure how long was it 12 months ago was it 9 months ago i honestly don't know it looked like you know it was the next big opportunity now a lot of the companies are off what 80% of their peak valuations 90% 70% what changed are you still you do have a paid um uh, later option at pine labs as well but my question is really about is there some is india different is the west different is this a lasting sustainable trend and where are we right now with regards to paid later so let me first of all explain what we do what we do is we are a platform through which any credit issuer who wants to deliver pay later services to their consumers you can do it off our platform what we don't do is we don't take credit risk on our own a classic pay which later which means you do not lend money we do not lend you're money we only facilitating it we only facilitate it for an hdfc bank or a zest money or an idfc which wants to give loan to their consumers to buy let's say a pair of jeans you can do it off our terminal you can do it off our platform we facilitate that transaction and those transactions are continuing to grow uh, exponentially so that's just a background in about in the earlier company of which you were ceo pay you right you did have a we did have lazy so pay. lazy pay you're absolutely right in the case of lazy pay we used to take credit on our books we used to take exposures on our books so you've seen both sides I of this i have seen both sides of it and how the economics runs and all of that right and i have reached a point where i'm saying that where pine labs is positioned i don't want to go into credit i'm happy to be a platform of choice but interestingly at the height of all of this pay later bubble i actually met a banker who told me you know these great american companies which are building pay later have the chance to disrupt visa and master i mean that's like complete bullshit right that's not going to happen at the end of the day if banks and financial institution can do 3 6 9 12 months of installment payments better they will always be able to outrun the pay later only monoline businesses which exist in the market and today what has happened is why is that because of their cost of have, funds <clears throat> one cost of fund but second is their distribution because of visa master has already happened and they are already available in so many places now on the other hand there is this pay later only company which comes up how are they going to go and deliver the pay later facility facility in a rural market 
they'll have to go sign up with the merchant, put up a device, get the transaction to their backend. It's just too much cost for them. Hence, that model just does not work, if you ask me. Now, I have to tell you this, that I saw it while that was happening. But, you know, many times you just sit there and you're saying, you're just stupid, right? You know, you're not getting it. So this was one of those pieces where I saw this was happening. I was like shaking my head. But you turn around and say, okay, man, you don't get it. What is happening? You might be completely wrong. By the way, this is not the first time it happened. Wallets. When we were running Citrus Pay, wallets became a very big story in those days. And I'm like sitting there and saying, why would a consumer move money into a separate wallet account to do a purchase transaction? There's just too much of friction on that. I sat there and said, wallets will never happen. I never built Citrus to get into the wallet space. And then you had wallets getting all the love. Businesses were being built on wallets. You're shaking your head and saying, okay, man, I don't get it. But when you look at five years later with the advent of UPI, wallets have all died. There is no wallet in the market which has survived through that crush. These ups and downs you get to see, you just need to have the patience to see it on the other side. You said you've been in the payment space for roughly 25 years. You've been part of multiple companies. You've started your own, your CEO uh, of Pine Labs. What continues to drive and motivate you? You know, uh, this is a this is a fantastic question, right? So, uh, you know, I feel that there is a certain mission which I have landed on. And I feel that what I do makes a tiny impact every day. Um, you know, again, I talk about it when I started off. I used to sell ATMs. My first purchase order for an ATM, you was for two ATMs. I sold two ATMs in the country. We threw a party for that two ATMs deal. From that scenario to a scenario where we are deploying 30, 35,000 POS terminals every month in the country, you look at it and said, I played a small part. And every day I wake up in the morning and saying, I'm playing a small part in that journey. So another piece which I want to clarify about me is, I'm not into this for entrepreneurship or startup. I'm into this because I'm still continuing my lifelong journey of moving money from paper-based to digital. And that's what keeps me excited every day. Have you ever thought about the concept of retiring? I did, I did, I did. You know, this is what I was trying to tell you. The first time founder made my money on my first exit. I thought I'm just going to chill uh, and I and I keep. How talking. long did it take you to come out of that? <laughs> was it months? I, you know, I it it was one year. It was one year which took me to realize saying, "I dude, I just can't do this. I literally can't do this." Where, uh, you know, I'm just sitting and um, you know going for vacations and. Uh, it You're forty nine today. Yeah. Do you have like? any kind of a age number in mind where you're like, at, after this age, I don't want to work. I, I, I just don't have it. And you know, you, you'll be surprised while growing up, uh, uh, you know, one of my friends, um, you know, he told me the other day saying, Amrish, you know, uh, you were the only guy who used to talk that you want to retire at the age of 40 and dude, you've done so well. I like, you know, it's just stuck in my head, right? No, you know, what are the, oh, hang on, I've got to tell you this one, right? So, there's another close friend of mine in my college days and then my wife also was in my college and uh, my wife is a Gujarati and the two of us used to turn around and say, boss, life mein kuch nahi chahiye. 
एक करोड़ का बैंक बैलेंस चाहिए एक करोड़ हम जाके स्टेट बैंक ऑफ इंडिया में रखने वाले टेन परसेंट इंटरेस्ट कमाएंगे दस लाख रुपए आएगा महीने का जिंदगी में और कुछ भी नहीं करना है माई वाइफ ऑफ गुजराती शी इज टू लुक एट मी एंड शी सेंग आई यू जस्ट मैड आई खिड यू नॉट एंड आई रिमेंबर दिस वेरी क्लियरली आई टू लुक बैक एंड सेंग श्वेता यू डोंट गेट इट दिस इज वॉट लाइफ इज ऑल अबाउट and as you grow and as you find your purpose and as you find your passion you suddenly realize that there is something else that you want to live for which is very interesting which brings me to the concept of fu money yeah um i don't know how to say this in a safe way but i think users will it's f y o u money which means what's the amount of money you need to earn and have with you to walk away from whatever you're doing does it ever i mean 1 crore was at one point in time your fu money is that does that concept even make sense to you anymore yes sub- this is the biggest problem for the first time founder for the first time founder what happens is first time founder is thinking of all these concepts which says that you know what Build is fu exit, money fu money uh, and the first time founder is also thinking about saying agar itna ban gaya to hum bech denge and all of those concepts come the first time founder when you are finished with that journey you then start to understand saying that hang on there is something completely different now of course it's unfair for me to say it because we had a great exit if there was not a great exit maybe the second time founder i would have made the same mistake also so please don't get me that i'm i know what i'm talking about all which i'm saying is the second time round all of these concepts just seem almost the real problem why you sold your company so one of the things which has changed if you ask me in india today the first time founders itself who are coming in they are coming in with a completely different mindset and i so appreciate their way of thinking and how they are building their businesses some of these concepts doesn't hit them um uh, i can't say the same thing about founders who started off in 12 2012 2013 but today the founders who are coming it's a small mini generation for the new founders to even believe that it's possible to build to last exactly not build to exit exactly and and you know the generations have changed parents have changed their upbringing has changed and your objective also changed in a very very good way um and i think i think we are in a good space if you ask me uh in terms of how founders are building it now of course you know somebody is going to turn around and ask me the question saying what do you think about this money burn which is happening that's a completely different question to this whole exit first kind of a mindset of a founder there is a saying that we are the average of the five people we spend the most amount of time with who's average are you who are these five people i'll have to say my um, my best buddies in school my drinking mates in college uh, i have to say i'm the average of those uh, five friends which even today you manage to find enough time to spend i do i do i i find enough time in fact in fact i spend a lot of time actually playing sport um i must be getting in about 30 games of cricket in a year i must be getting in a game of tennis uh, every week um so i i generally i'm still completely a sum of my school friends and my drinking mates in uh, in the engineering college that's a great lead into this often held stereotype that if you have so much time to play and hang out with your college buddies you must not be a very good ceo conversely 
if you are a great ceo almost every single waking hour that you have must be consumed with your so what's your answer to that how come you have so much of free time and your you know you did say that pine labs is not just a company of which you are ceo but it's also you're an owner of it so where is the which one of these is true or where between both of these extreme does the truth lie when i'm at my work i'm playing sport i see everything as a sport in my life and when i'm at work also it is a team which is building to try and win a championship it is a team which is working in a football field or a cricket ground trying to get an outcome so i actually don't see a difference between what is happening on in my office days and outside of my office days then the other piece which is there which is extremely important is if i give everybody the freedom saying if you make a mistake it's okay i give myself the same freedom which says that if you get it wrong it's okay if you don't go for a meeting it's perfectly fine you know i've spoken about this that i actually live in singapore uh, over the last 11 years i have been in india for about 15 to 20 days of the month and the rest of it i actually go back and spend in singapore so i try and get that uh, balance right on that one but what happens in that one is there are enough and more instances where i don't go for important meetings i don't turn up where the finance minister has called for a meeting and i'm saying sorry i just can't make it i don't want to go there i will not meet up it just happened two days back by the way my pr firm asia pacific leader he was in singapore and then there was this another founder who was in singapore and this pr firm leader messages me and says hey amrish i'm here i would like to meet up with you at the same time there's a founder who was so i told the founder i'll come and meet you today this pr firm uh, person i just didn't have time coincidentally they both knew each other so this pr firm guy says hey, hang on i know you're going and meeting someone and i was like dude i just have to prioritize where i my time has to go and sometimes i'll burn bridges i will make mistakes but theek hai yaar you know uh, at the end of the day you've got to do what you really feel like doing all right you've raised a lot of money over the years positive pay and then subsequently like you said a billion dollars over the last year or so at pine labs what are your biggest learnings from all your unsuccessful attempts at raising money i i think the biggest learning that i've had is you need to understand the stage of your own company and you need to understand the psyche of the investor i'll give you one example there was this large hedge fund kind of a so incidentally if you look at the pine labs cap table i don't have hedge funds on my cap table there was this one hedge fund who actually reason being and i'll explain that okay. reason right so the one hedge fund absolutely has a great relationship with me always likes the story has a very deep conversation never invests into pine lab and that person's take on it is he's saying i have a thesis which says that if the company is not growing 100% i will not invest into the company and i'm like dude i can't grow at 100% but if you see him i have an ebitda positive position why wouldn't you want to invest he's saying this is not my thesis so i then realize that how does a angel investor think and it's completely different how does a vc think how does a private equity think how does a hedge fund think and then how does a crossover Could i ask you to simplify those into a very abstract level starting with let's say angel investors angel investors for example thinks of it as 
आई एम टेकिंग अ बेट ऑन द इंडिविजुअल ये तो मेरा भाई है आई नो दिस पर्सन आई एम गिविंग दैट मनी वी सीज what kind of returns are they expecting in i don't general, think so they are even India. thinking about returns you know they are saying oh i know this person i like the space the person is i'm sure i'll get some return it's much more of a fun thing then you have a vc the vc is turning around and say look i like your idea show me that you are getting close to product market fit or you've developed a product market fit i will go and back you out there that is what a vc is turning then there is a growth investor the growth investor is saying i've seen your product market fit i've seen your uh, your business is continuing to grow you are growing 10% month on month if you get some more money i think you could go grow 20% month on month and you could grow it for next 3 years i'm going to give you growth capital private equity is turning around and saying well you've done that now you're beginning to stagnate out there for that now now what you need to do is you now need to do something out of the ordinary or you could take out costs or you could do something strategically important i'm ready to give you capital for that that is where a private equity come in hedge fund is saying well you know what i have so much capital i don't know what to do with this capital i need to find a place where i'm going to put the money in right now the mood of the market is money is cheap growth is happening i want to back a growth based companies here is a capital which i give to you and then there is a crossover where the crossover is saying i only invest into public markets in an ipo there is only so much of shares which come out in the ipo if i can manage to get some allocation just before the ipo i'm ready to give you some capital so that i've already got what i needed once you go to ipo here is the money for you now you need to know where you are really and based on that you then go to that investor who's ready to invest in that if you can get that mathematics right then i think you have a higher chance of getting and raising money so i'm assuming you made some of these mistakes at citrus pay where you met investors who weren't fully aligned with absolutely. where you were as well absolutely you in citrus pay we actually met masoishi son and this is the time when citrus was this tiny fly when if you consider and we had a chance to meet up with masoishi son we met up with nikesh in those days I went and met up with some of the hedge funds which were invested into HDFC Bank. Completely wrong, and we still made great presentations to them. Came back discussing, saying, "Oh, this was a great meeting." No, you're never going to get money out of this uh, situation. All right. If you could go back in time and change one thing about any of your major decisions in your entrepreneurial career, what would that be? I wouldn't have sold Citrus. I'm. Why do you say that? so again you know people talk about it well citrus could have been valued this or valued that i wasn't you know i've it has never bothered me on that topic what bothered me till pine labs happened is at the end of the day you need your own horse you need your own carriage and you need to be able to hug it every day and saying this is mine when i sold citrus i lost that and that made me so uncomfortable Uh, it's not funny now when i look at what i'm doing with pine labs i really believe i have been able to get that all over again uh, and that's why i'm completely satisfied with where i am but that's one decision in my entrepreneurial career which i will regret forever all right what is it that you feel you add most value to pine labs as its ceo if it were one thing which you had to abstract it out to I I think as the one thing which I add 
to the company i feel is this sense of speed and velocity uh i think uh, you know my my job is to drive velocity and speed uh within the company obviously drive a lot more focus but that's an obvious thing but the fact of driving velocity is extremely extremely important especially in an organization which has got multiple businesses 4200 people the sense of urgency and driving velocity is something which i feel is my number one role now very close to that is um you know this whole culture and what you build in the company is important i'll give you one example um when we sold citrus our office boy made 50 lakhs when we sold citrus yesterday i was in the office out here i was working late uh the boy who was uh, giving me chai i i had a 20 minutes conversation with him in terms of how much do you earn where have you come from where do you stay i wish everybody does that with everybody in the company the simple principle is if i'm in the position to lead a company anybody who comes in that company has to be happy when they are there or have to have learned something new in that period of time if i can drive that culture in the organization i think i'll be very satisfied with my role i assume you spend a lot of your time hiring or finding talented people do you have a hack to spot talented people who are not necessarily talking to you searching for a job you know i'm not good at it uh i'll tell you um i'm not i'm not very good at it in terms of uh, uh i wish i wish i was very good in terms of you know having one conversation and two conversations and and get it right i am that's one skill which i'm continuing to build which says that what does it take to really understand an individual you know you talked about it in in this uh, um in the segment that you've created in first principles uh, there's this whole concepts around framework this is one framework which i'm yet building uh it's not yet it's, there's not a formula which i can turn around and say that you know i i get surprised with people who turn around and say i have this one beautiful question which gives me the answer like i have still haven't figured out my interview still start with the stupid tell me something about yourself you know that sort of a thing i think that's a framework which i want to evolve on the other hand knowing people getting connected with people forming a team getting us all in that same direction is something which i feel i do well uh, but that first interview process and identifying i have not been very good at it what's your span of control how many people report to you at pine labs at this point of time i've got 14 people reporting to me uh and again that's largely because we've got so many different businesses within our organization i've got 14 people reporting to me how often do you end up having one to one conversations every day. every day so this is another thing which uh, uh which uh, i'm into right again you know this is a little bit about from where i come i come from bombay uh the other pieces i talk so much about sport So I'm generally in that camp which says don't get offended if I'm going to call you up you know it's not that I'm sitting here and you know you know I, it's just a thought which came in my mind I want to have a conversation uh, let's do a call I would my short answer to that is every day Amrish what are some of the first principles that you turn to on a regular basis So 
two things which are um, you know so, you know something which i follow in my business one is invariably look at the input metric and not look at the output metric uh, you know you would want to think that when you're running a large company uh, you have a very good handle on what the revenue is going to be end of this month end of this quarter and many many times i have no clue by a long mile in terms of where that revenue is going to come in but if you ask me the input metric associated to those businesses i would be very good at that input metric in terms of how many consumers came for our prepaid card or how many merchants did we bring on board uh, some of the banks which we have there all of those i will know i will not know what the revenue output is and at a first principle basis i actually feel that when you're in the growth stage of a business you should think about everything at a input metric and not think it as output metric so that's one thing which i follow every time the other piece which i tend to do is i tend to break everything down into small components you got to remember i never went to a management school i learned on the job so i tend to break everything into small components so um in any fix when i get to i go back to a model which says what's the goal what's the objective that i'm trying to solve for to solve for those goals and objectives what are the three four strategies which can allow me to solve for that goal to deliver to each one of these strategies are there smaller tactics or actions that i can to do so that i can deliver to those strategies and then to take those actions what are the enabling things that i need to do so, but at the heart of it is i'm just trying to constantly break the problem down into the smallest component and then again then don't worry about what's the objective then just worry about the small components and see if the small components are going well which is in a way the input metric and the output will take care of itself yeah i mean i was just going to make the point that like both of the points that you mentioned are related do you as an organization either here or at payu or have you or citrus pay followed something like let's say the okr methodology which also at some level takes or or takes multiple lower down organizational goals or team goals and rolls it up into a higher so we've just started with the okr process in pine labs and that too is very interesting because just today one of my colleagues has done a story on how a lot of indian startups are still struggling to yes. come to terms with and i must full disclosure we've tried okrs once in the past I'm at the can and we failed oh really yeah. okay so just just in this year in one of the parts which is the biggest part of the business which is the core pine labs business we have started the okr process and that too for example on the insistence of the cpto of cpto of the company nobody cares what the ceo wants to say the cpto says that amrish we got to do this what's the cpto uh, the Ch- product and technology ah, officer right. got it so he basically is saying amrish this is what we should do we should set up so the okr process only for the product and technology organization right only for the product and technology organization and he's saying i want to build this up using the okr framework and let's do it and that's something that he has actually gone ahead and implemented uh i have to say i'm catching up with what he wants to do there so i'm a follower in that again going back to what i talked about it that's a muscle which i'm trying to build uh saying how does this whole okr process run what is the role of the ceo how can i contribute to this uh so i'm a follower if you ask me in that process i want to go back to the point that you said about 
you focus on input metrics versus output metrics could i ask you to clarify with possibly a couple of examples like you know in maybe in the course of let's say citrus pay or what does it mean to focus on input metrics yeah i'll I'll give, i'll give you an example right so uh if my objective is to get more solution based selling done in the market i'm not going to be looking at the end of the month which says how many of these softwares did we sell i'm spending much more time in terms of how many training classes did we do for our employees people who are sitting in dibrugarh people who are sitting in hubli walking the street on behalf of pine labs to bring merchants in how much did we train them show me the curriculum that you have built for them so that they can train better that's where i spend most of my time what i don't spend most of my time is like okay send me the report i want to see the report of how many softwares did we sell how much was the revenue associated with it i really feel that's the cfo or somebody else's job my strength is really sitting down and now what happens in that one is in some cases people turn around and say no hang on you're micromanaging right uh, this is not where we want you to be at but i'm saying no but i'm not so not sitting there and actually trying to ask you saying kal tumne kitna progress kiya wo main nahi puch raha hu main bata raha hu show me what have you built as an ecosystem so that you can train better to that sales person who comes on board this takes me to the concept of organizations which are input driven or output driven output driven organizations typically are driven by targets and goals right. and whether they are met or not input driven organizations are driven by processes and what you're doing and how you're doing etc is pine labs an input driven organization or an output driven one so pine labs is definitely an input driven organization but then you need to have a very good mix i'll give you one example um my boss in first data in my corporate world is now working with me here as the cfo he's a german guy and if you meet that guy he's a completely different individual from me he cannot think input input metrics at all he only thinks of everything as an output metrics in fact one of the reasons why i wanted him to come in and be a part of our organization is because he's completely different from me in their thinking process now of course there are leaders who come back and say amrish you say something the cfo is saying something else what's happening here why are you guys not on the same page i said we are two different individuals that's the reason why we should have a person of that sort right that is one the second thing to it is i also wanted to force a different culture within the organization so that we don't become this bro culture we don't become this culture so we get into enough and more fights you know he used to be my ex boss i brought him into pinele we get into enough and more fights where he is like no 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 you're not getting this but i'm saying that's what you need i mean look i'm going to touch on to a very controversial topic right now these are some of the things that younger organization need to do two co-founders need not be the same uh the cfo and the ceo needs to be in every organization with a completely different mindset they should not be hand in glove with each other in many situations you eventually will come up with a better outcome in that case with the benefit of hindsight that's true but also in very young startups what happens is employees are sometimes looking to founders and looking for signs of conflict and they, there is almost this I implicit agree. understanding that founders need to think as a hive brain Completely and if they agree. are not then there is conflict completely agree 
and 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 this is something which again it is a matter of communication and explaining so one of the things which i do in my company and it's i it's an really a large organization on a whatsapp we have got about 100 people in our company on that single whatsapp and one of the reason why i have that 100 people group is i hope that we can tell each other how different we are if i am having a hangover i let it know on that group i am having a hangover please don't come and ask me any questions today because it's just going to be a bad day for you guys uh but what i'm trying to communicate out there is saying i'm not perfect i'm going to have the days with a hangover and i'm not going to be a good individual on that day but it's important to communicate that everybody is going to be different and everybody is going to be accepted in their own situations and scenarios what are the three four buckets that consume roughly 80% of your work week if i were to look at your calendar or the time that you spend in a week what would be the top three things so the i i can think of top two things right one is i'm always trying to figure out how can our product be better and hence i'm spending a lot of time in identifying issues or ways in which we can improve our product so that's one bucket in how which, do you do that i mean it's just constantly sitting there and reviewing which says that guys with the product team what did we learn and what are we implementing and why what do we believe will make a difference as far as the consumer or the merchant is concerned and that's something which i spent in fact just coming in today the full day has been a lot about going through some of those flows and all of that so that generally takes a lot of my time the second piece to it is a lot of reactive activities which we have to do right so invariably what is happening is in a large complex business 4200 people lots of moving parts there are constantly cases where you know you have to get into it and saying can we have a quick chat on this topic you know what can be done here what can be improved can you give me an update of where that is i think that is a second bucket which is you know almost being reactive on that generally the third part which is around reviews and uh, uh, taking uh, updates and all of that around the financials i tend to offload that to the cfo uh and and that's something which i am the secondary person in those conversation rather than the primary person what are some of the stock responses people may hear from you if they come to you saying i have this problem can you solve it for me what are you most likely to say i don't come to you to solve for my problem why are you coming to me for me to solve your problem at the beginning of this interview you said we are in in india we are always in the war times to i get that you see it that way possibly your leadership team sees it that way but do most employees see that they're in war times and do they need to yes and no and what you will always have is you will have this motivated employee which wants to improve their knowledge curve wants to go up in the value chain wants to get promoted get to a better lifestyle and if you have an individual there then the individual needs to have a very good understanding of where the product is what time we are in uh, what is the ecosystem doing around us the more aware you are the more you rise up faster through it 
at the same time there is an there is a engineer out there which says that i love what i do i code every day just gives me complete satisfaction in what i do and there you are actually saying no you don't really need to know that we are in a war time kind of an environment you have your peace and you do what you want to do as long as you're happy we should all be okay what are the phrases pet phrases that you are known for inside the company i it just went through one of them right which says that you know i don't come to you to solve my jobs uh, uh, why are you coming to me um yeah you What's know the most common thing you say during review meetings most common thing i can't i mean i, I unfortunately right. i don't know uh, right. what i do say. what's the one line your colleagues or team dreads hearing from you which is usually a sign that well you know is it this look i'm else? i'm usually uh, you know i usually tell everybody saying guys take your time tomorrow morning you can come and give me the update uh it's only when i complete the second sentence they realize what i just spoken so i think that whole velocity which says take your time come tomorrow morning and give me the answer uh i think just drives velocity so they would they know that i'm generally driving for velocity office or work from home uh for me definitely office what does a productive day look like for you if at the end of the day you're feeling satisfied wow that was a great day can't wait to do that again what might you have done during that day that makes you feel like that i absolutely love speaking to a customer or speaking to someone who's going to give me an insight of what is happening in the ecosystem what is happening at the merchant location what is happening when a transaction is happening the more i learn about uh the ecosystem the more i converse with a, a customer the more i'm involved in a sales scenario i absolutely love it but that same could happen on a product conversation where there could be a phenomenal product manager who's educating me on something completely new i tend to get blown away with some new insights that i get to hear do you read a lot of books you know i read a lot i analyze a lot you know uh, my mind doesn't stop when it comes to analyzing you know that's one thing which people will tell you that i'm on it every time my mind just doesn't stop and i read heavily through all of that what i don't do very well is read books uh and i'm not into reading books i'll read Same. i'll read a lot of what uh, arundhati would write on the ken and uh you know i have to say i really enjoy reading what she writes there uh but you know it's it's a source of knowledge source of information you're always getting to capture something completely new that's really how i read and i learn and and how do you either document is it all just sitting in your head and those connections are just being made inside your brain or do you have some kind of a system to essentially like you know great insights i'm going to put it into i'm going to journal it i'm going to like create lists out of it or do you have any kind of a formal method to capture yeah, the I, knowledge I tend out to, of it i tend to write most things down see this is something which with i learned with pen and paper with pen and paper or on my pad this is something which i learned very early in my career so uh, i used to have this manager and this was in my first job and at 5 o'clock in the evening i was just loitering around office and he asked me saying amrish is your day over he said yeah i said yeah the day is over i've done everything and he actually rattled off did you do this did you do that and i said no and this person sat me down and he said do me a favor write it down it'll stick in your brains 
uh, I go for customer meetings. I go into any situation. You know, I've come to meet you. I carried my pad because, you know, if there's something I need to write down, I need to have that paper and pen next to me. So I tend to do that quite a bit. And and what's your, in my experience, or at least like, you know, personal experience as well as talking to a lot of people, it's writing down, which is easy, but, you know, the, the real value creation happens when you're able to go back to it and references. So do you also have a method to, let's say you've written stuff down all through this week. Like some people, for instance, over the weekends will go back and review it and I create. don't do that. Yeah. I that, don't do that. Yeah. You know, uh, very surprising. And, uh, you know, over the years, I filled out books after books. And, you know, I filled out writing pads after writing pads. And every few years, I throw away those writing pads. Uh, they're not searchable. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're not such That's a one yeah, exactly. of my biggest yeah, exactly. grouses that all people who take <coughs> handwritten notes, I ask Absolutely. them, how do you go back to they're them and how do you search for them? They're not searchable. So, uh, no, I am not good at going back and reviewing it. But once you write it down, somewhere, you know, it just falls into your yeah, I mental think state. there's a lot that, of science and research that says writing it down is it like just a sticks feedback with me loop. And, and yeah, like, but know, I, yeah. I don't necessarily go back and read through it again and again. All right. You did say you've two kids, yes, twenty-one and eighteen. Tell us about them. Um, yeah, my son is twenty-one. My uh, my daughter is eighteen. Uh, both of them have now uh, gone to college. Both of them are in the U.S. studying. Uh, both are in New York, Columbia, um, and yeah, we we are at a stage where we are uh, empty nesters right now. We don't know what home is uh, because you know home could be anywhere. Uh, so yeah, interesting stage. So it's you and your wife at home. That's correct. Both of you are also co-investors, co-angel investors, and you started a fund That's along with your co-founder from Citrus Pay, That's Jitendra correct. Gupta. That's correct. Tell us about that. So How you many know, angel investments have you made to date, approximately? So I would say I would have done about 60. Shweta would have done about, let's say, 40. Jiten would have done another 30 more, which would be independent from this 100, which I've talked about. So let's say about 130 investments that we there would have done. There are funds that have done far fewer deals. Yeah. <laughs> As angel investment, we've done about 130 of them. And, uh, and, and incidentally, all of this have two common factors. One, either we know the founders and we like the founders, or this is a space in which we really want to understand something and we enjoy that space and we've been involved into that. I'll give you one example. Uh, there are these guys, you know, who are building something called Juno. On Juno is what they're building. And those guys not have the breakout when it comes to valuations and they haven't become a unicorn. But every time I speak to those founders, I just get this new source of energy. And I think that's the fix with which... So you almost like, sorry living vicariously through... Yeah, just being the fly on the wall yeah. and, you know, getting to see some great experiences. But what started to happen was we actually had about four or five unicorns which turned out in those investments of ours. So we were, for example, the first check with Cred, with Bank Open, MPL, uh, Khata Book, many of them. And incidentally, what happened was when you're an angel investor, you write the first check, you write the second check, but you can't do proratas beyond a certain point. And that's when we started to feel we are letting go of an opportunity. So we then felt that let's start to look for external money. But at the same time, both of us, Jiten is doing a real startup of his own. I'm doing a real job. It's something that we can't give any focus to. And Shweta was completely into this whole angel investment world. 
So she's like the GP. She runs this entirely. We are the side advisors who are able to source deals and then saying that, hey, I have an opinion if this deal could be good or bad. But you know, the setting up of the fund, the running of the fund, talking to LPs, oh my God, such a tough job. Uh, and that's really what the core team which runs the fund does on a day-to-day -day basis. Now done about 10 investments. What's in the fund the called? White Ventures. It's called White Ventures. Just done about 10 investments uh, now, uh, largely focused on fintech, both in uh, India and in Southeast Asia. On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you with your life? A 10? I mean, happiness is 0 and 1, isn't it? Uh, That's the way to look at it. Happiness I mean, is as, zero one. as an engineer, then you would say, okay, what are the decimal points between <laughs> zero and <laughs> no, no, happiness is zero one. So, you know, uh, it's it's 10. That's interesting. 100%. That's the happiness being a binary. This thing is the first time I've heard that. Which morning of the sorry, week? Sorry, sorry. I've got to add one thing. Sure. Personally, it is 10. Professionally, I would say three. And this is something which I've learned over a period of time. That when you are building something and when you are running something, you're always unhappy. You're always deeply frustrated with where you are. You always feel that, oh my God, there are so many things to be done. Why can't I do this better? So it's a deeply unsatisfying uh, run on a professional front. Uh, personal front, as I say, is 10 out of 10. It's very interesting, that dichotomy. I, I, I fully relate to that. But on one level, you're saying it's deeply frustrating. Oh my God, I'm just a 3 on 10. And at another level, you're saying it's big. I know it's a 3 on 10, but that's really what makes me happy as a 10 on 10. Yeah. So it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. so, so you know, it's not that someone else, that self-awareness exists within you. Yeah. And you're like, my unhappiness yeah. <laughs> is the cause of my happiness. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, you're right. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate yourself as a parent and as a CEO? Well, as a parent, both my kids still speak to me. <laughs> They're 21 <laughs> and 18. So I think I'm good at that, one, right? I mean, we are living in this world where, you know, everybody wants to do their own thing. Well, my kids both speak to me. Uh, and I think that's all which you want uh, at this point of time. What's the number? Uh, well, you know, you can always do better. You can always do better. You uh, shall not give me a number. I would say, I would say I'll be like seven. All right. I'll say I'll be at seven. Uh, professionally as a CEO, as I said, I think I'll be a three or a four. All right. If you were locked in a room for 28, 24 hours with no internet, what would you do? Um... I think it'll be it'll have to be some sport where I'm trying to figure out how I can improve on something, and you know, it could be about you know what I need to do on my forehand on tennis, or it could be about you know how I need to improve my fitness so that my bloody team doesn't drop me uh, in the next game. So it'll have to be something of that sort. Do you get a lot of ageism related jokes from your team? I mean, those guys are like rubbish here. I think I'm so good that I need to open the batting and I need to open the balling and I end up getting dropped. And I tell you, this is a <laughs> this is a miserable team that I play with. Six out of ten times when you're eating out, what do you end up ordering? That's an interesting one. I think the palate has changed, right? So, uh, 
it's a lot of asian food is what uh, you by know by virtue of the fact that you're in singapore and you've great asian food i i think it's because of that but it's a what dish um you know some uh, dim sum would be great uh, some uh, you know japanese sushis would be great but it's a lot more of the asian flavors is what has now come in which morning of the week do you look forward to the most a uh, monday mornings are great i'm Why? i'm charged up i'm about to go i'm like go 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 <laughs> saturday is also phenomenal because invariably there's some sport hanging around on that day right if we gave you the opportunity to describe yourself in a single word what might that be amrish rao the dot 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 what would you like what would you like your legacy to be what would you like that one word to be uh you know i i i look you know d- different different people and you know i'll i'll say some things now you know you touched upon something very interesting right uh different people different things right so for example uh, i would love my kids to tell me saying uh, uh he taught me good things um i'll be very happy with my life if that happens at that point in time um if uh, if my wife says he treated me well i'll be very happy with that outcome uh if my co-founder in uh, citrus jiten when we are all done with turns around and says he was a fine man that i could trust i'll be very happy with it um people who worked me in the worked with me in the team uh says that those days that i spend with him in his businesses were the best days of my career i'll be super happy with that outcome so yeah different people you would want to hear different things all right Thanks a ton for that Amrish. I think that's all we had for you. Thank You've you been a great much. sport. Thank you so much for Thank coming on the much. podcast. Thank you very much. Just enjoyed it a lot. Didn't see how the time could fly. <laughs> hey there. This is Rohan again. If you like this episode, please consider rating us on the app you're listening to us on. This could be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast from. This helps us reach newer listeners even faster. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or tips for us, write to us at podcasts at thecan dot com. That's p o d c a s t s at thecan dot com.